our study tonight in 2 Kings, and we're going to, Lord willing, finish up on chapter 20. Uh, there's a lot of verses to cover, but I want to stay with the thought because we are going to go to the end of the chapter where it's going to talk about Hezekiah's death. So this is the last part about that. So what we have tonight is we're going to actually have a, a few sections of scripture in Isaiah that we're going to look at. Then we're going to go to 2 Chronicles again. And then we're going to go back to 2 Kings 20 verses 12 through 21. And let me just give the outline there, get that in our minds. So I've entitled this Hezekiah's Wealth, Alliance, and Death. And as we're going through this, we're going to find out that Isaiah, after being, I'm sorry, uh, Hezekiah, after being healed, he, he writes a hymn, and it's a hymn concerning his recovery. Then we're going to see that he prospered, and the Lord prospered him, and he gained a lot of wealth and also uh, some of the territory uh, around the location of Jerusalem. So we're going to see Hezekiah's wealth. Then we're going to see that the king of Babylon sent individuals to visit Hezekiah. They heard that he is healed, and I believe they've gone there to make an alliance with him since he is just uh, being very, very exalted. Well, then Isaiah comes in, and Isaiah is going to give a prophecy to Hezekiah and it's a sad prophecy. It's the prophecy that, that they too, Judah, Jerusalem, are also going to go into captivity, but it'll be into Babylon. And then Hezekiah's final acts and his death. So before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer this evening. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we take a look at Hezekiah, he is a breath of fresh air, Lord, compared to the other kings who follow their own hearts, follow after other gods, and do not trust you like Hezekiah. And yet we're going to see that Hezekiah was not perfect. And we've learned that, Father, that even though David, a man after your, God's own, after your own heart, Lord, was not perfect. And it's not the idea that we have to be perfect to be people after your heart, but we truly have to be after your heart. And when we do fall, when we do sin, we confess it with, with real, genuine repentance and then put ourselves right back on following you. Father, would you teach us from this last section about Hezekiah? Uh, there's a lot of detail, Lord, so would you put it all together for us that we understand it? And we'll just thank you and give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's do the review. All right, so... Where we talked about last time was, you remember the Assyrians came and put pressure on Hezekiah and they said, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust us or are you going to trust your God? And they'll go so far as to say, look, we've defeated all the other gods. Do you really think your God will be able to deliver you from us? And of course, at that time, they're starting to now... Uh, really call out God, and you don't want to do that. Well, what happened was Hezekiah was faithful, trusted the Lord in this instance, 
And the angel of the Lord struck 185,000 warriors. So that was the end of Assyria taking Judah, even though Assyria had just taken northern Israel. Well, southern Israel was protected. Finally, we find out that Sennacherib, he was killed with the sword. So the Lord saved Jerusalem. And what we find out after this salvation here in their deliverance as a nation, Hezekiah was exalted, and he was exalted by other nations. Um, and then something happens, and we talked about this last week. He became mortally ill. He was dying. And he was talking to uh, Isaiah, and he prayed to the Lord. Isaiah said, get your affairs in order. You're going to die. And so he prayed to the Lord, and he humbled himself, and the Lord answered him, and he gave him 15 more years. And for the most part, they were 15 good years, but not everything that happened in those 15 years was good. And the news that he's going to hear at the end of those 15 years is going to be sad news, and that is the Babylonians will take him into captivity. Well, not him, but Jerusalem. He was then healed and he had been given a sign, and the sign was that the shadow was going to recede. Now, we know shadows get longer as the day goes on, but his sign was that the shadow was going to recede, and it did. And so he knew that he was going to be healed, and in fact, that he was. And so where we pick this up now is Isaiah 38, verse 9. And I'll ask you to go there. Isaiah 38, verse 9. Because Hezekiah writes a hymn of thanksgiving explaining the situation about knowing he was going to die and then the Lord's deliverance. So what's very interesting is this hymn is not in 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. It's just in Isaiah, but it's worth our taking a look at and reading this evening. So let's look at Hezekiah's writing of recovery or Hezekiah's hymn of recovery. Isaiah 38, beginning in verse 9. So look at what it says in verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. And what one might think as they're reading through this is one might think, well, he's he's praying now and we're in the midst of it. No. This tells us the context. It's after his illness and it's his recovery. So what does he write? Well, verse 10, he is going to write about he was in the prime of his life. He was in the middle of his life when he found out that he was going to die. He said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol, Sheol being the place of the dead. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. Now, one thing I want to say is <clears throat> sometimes we use the expression, <clears throat> and it's a human expression, that person died before his time. Well, I get it. When you think of a young person that is in an accident and they die, you think they have their whole life ahead of them. But 
there, there is really no such thing as that because the Lord is in control. So here he's in midlife. He's not too young. He's not too old. And um, I don't know if he's on Medicare yet. But he is uh, in the prime of his life, and he finds out there's a death sentence on him. The Lord says, through Isaiah, get your affairs together. So we're going to look through this first part about how he really feels. And you can imagine he feels like, I'm deprived of the rest of my years. I've had my whole life ahead of me. Verse 11, he is going to talk about being absent from the events on the earth. One might say, well, maybe at this point, he's starting to get a little self-centered and saying, well, you know, I'm not going to be on the earth and I'm going to miss everything. I think, I think giving him the benefit of the doubt, we see him with an attitude that is, I'm not going to be able to see the Lord work among his people. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it's there implicitly. Verse 11, I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. And, and I, I truly think in his prayer, he's saying, I'm not going to see what God is going to do to Israel. I'm not going to see uh, God's great works and uh, as he deals with man. He, he just was delivered not too long ago from the Assyrians, and so there is a sadness. Now, one thing I want to point out just quickly, notice he says, I will not see the Lord, and then he says it again, the Lord. And if you notice in your Bibles, those are in all capitals, and that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So there's a reference that when he was told that he was going to die, he went to the right place, the right source. He went to Yahweh, Yahweh. Well, verse 12 is kind of interesting because he's going to get metaphorical. And he's going to talk about that when his life is snuffed out, it's going to be like a shepherd's tent that folds up or like a weaver's blanket that has been cut off from the loom. Um, I, I had been told a, a, a joke, well, it wasn't a joke, but it was a funny expression, and um, I'm deba <laughs> debating whether I said it. It has to do with hunting, and, um, well, I'm going to go ahead and say it now, and maybe I'll just go back, and I'll just take it out, but um, there, I was watching some coyote videos, and uh, they were calling in coyotes, and they, they shot the coyote, and um, the fella said that the, the coyote folded over like a cheap tent, okay? So just hearing that expression, if you're a coyote hunter, that was kind of humorous. I don't want to get into the whole debate about uh, animal lovers and things like that. But now that I've started it, here we go. This is exactly how a, 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 a pastor will go down a rabbit trail. You've got to be on guard. All right, so anyway, uh, you know, if, if you allow them to just go without hindering their population or taking out a good majority of their population, they will become overrun. So 
that's why here in the West we hunt predators. And this fellow was in Canada, and he said when he shot that coyote, he said he folded like a cheap tent. Well, okay. <laughs> Verse 12, like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. So he's using a metaphor. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you describe how you're feeling uh, when you're told that you are about to die? Now, as a believer, we would say one way or the other, you are realizing you are going to be with the Lord, and that's a good thing. And yet, humanly, um, you may have grandchildren, you may have certain things, so there's going to be a part of you that kind of wishes you could have saw that, could have seen your grandchildren grow up, get married, have a family, and be a part of all of that. So I get that. But he says it's like a shepherd, not a, not a cheap tent, but a shepherd's tent. And one might imagine a shepherd's tent as a one-man or a two-man tent. They have a lot of tents over there, uh, or they did in, in the Middle East, uh, even in Egypt, and some of them were quite large. But a shepherd's tent was a very small tent. And Hezekiah looks at himself as very small compared to God. And he says, my, my shepherd's tent is being folded up. He says, as a weaver who rolls up his life, he cuts off the blanket that's being weaved on the loom. He cuts it. And so it's no longer there. And perhaps he's thinking it's not finished. It should be finished. He says, for from day until night, you make an end of me. So he is coming to grips with, with his death. Now, one of the things to remember is he's going to finish up with this, giving praise to the Lord for answering his prayer and giving him longer life. But we see this here in the sense of these metaphors. And he's not done with the metaphors. Verse 13, he says, I composed my soul. So he's, he's uh, having problems. He's really struggling. He's really sad. He's, he's uh, beside himself. And it says, I composed my soul until morning like a lion. So he breaks all my bones from day until night. You make an end of me. And so in other words, he's saying, I, I was able to control myself. I was able to keep my soul uh, in composure to a certain point, and then I lost it again. And you know what? That is kind of the human experience, isn't it? Um, it, it we, we will have victory over something. It, we're told not to worry or be anxious, and, and there's a time we turn it over to the Lord, and then somehow or other, we start, you know, stealing it back from the Lord, and we're applying it. We're struggling with it. And so this is what he is saying. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. This is graphic, and I'm probably not the guy to be teaching this stuff tonight. Um, you know, I, 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 I have read a lot of books about man-eating lions and those things, and th it, it's not really funny, but when those lions or tigers would come in and, and swipe a person and carry that person away, the whole village would go after them, and they knew they were getting close when they heard the crunching of the bones. Well, this is what Hezekiah is feeling like on the inside, like a lion is chewing on me, crushing my bones. I've tried to keep my composure, but how do you keep your composure like that? 
And then in verse 14, he talks about his internal mourning and moaning. Um, I don't know if you've ever done it or if you've ever heard anyone do it, but just kind of moan, and not just moan one time, but moan like every other breath. Uh, they, they probably don't realize they're doing it, but they're, uh, uh, you know, and, and you hear that. Well, that's what he's going to say. He says, like a swallow bird, like a crane, so I Twitter. Now, that has nothing to do with technology, okay? Twitter has nothing. It means that that swallow, that bird is flittering around. And at this point, his thoughts are flittering around. He can't concentrate. He keeps going back to this. And then he says, I moan like a dove. And so we hear a dove. They moan in the morning. They coo in the morning. Uh, they do it quite frequently. And, and that's the word that's used here. He says, my eyes look wistfully to the heights. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. So we, we kind of see a change now. He's, he's, he's in the pit, is he not? But he ends with, O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. His soul is now turning to God. Now, before we go to verse 14, I do want to share an illustration, but this is a good one. This isn't having to do with hunting or crunching of bones. You notice where it says, I moan like a dove? That Hebrew word, means to moan uh, or can mean growl but it's the same word that's used when David says I meditate on your word what I don't get it you what do you mean you you moan on my word what what the idea is it doesn't have to be that of a dove it could be what what's the sound that you make when you think hmm that is the definition of meditating on God's word. Hmm. You're thinking about God's word. And uh, Psalm 1, uh, he uses it. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he hagah. He meditates day and night. Hmm. And there's many other Psalms that he talks about meditate, and meditate is this word hagah. So there you go. Hopefully that one good illustration will overcome the two bad illustrations that I've just said recently. Okay, let's move on. Verse 15, again, we're in the middle of his hymn. It's a hymn of recovery, but we noticed in verse 14 a change from the morning to looking at God. And isn't that the solution in all things? Rather than looking at ourselves, Rather than looking at our circumstances, we are to look to the Lord, and this is what he does. And by the way, we already know the outcome. The outcome is that he was healed, and he was given 15 more years. And that's what it told us in the very beginning, after his illness and recovery. Verse 15, what shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. <clears throat> I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. So when he talks about he has spoken to me, the Lord spoke to him 
like he spoke to other people in the Old Testament through the prophets. You remember Isaiah came and told them that his life would be spared. The Lord had heard his prayer and he had heard that the, the prophecy of the Lord, the voice of the Lord through the prophet. That's what a prophet does. That's what an apostle does. We don't do that. And I, I've, never been, I've never been fond of anyone saying, well, that was a good word from the Lord. What? I'm studying the Bible. I'm studying the scriptures. Uh, praise God, the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand it. But this, this isn't any kind of prophetic thing that's happening to me. Um, you know, may, and, and it's the Holy Spirit who will apply it to your life. You're coming to church, just minding your own business, and all of a sudden, you hear a sermon directed right towards you. That's not the case. I don't direct it toward, I direct it towards all of us, and I also direct it towards myself. So, the Lord spoke to him, and of course, we know what the Lord said, your life has been spared. And, and notice where it says, I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. What does that mean? That means that, in these first few verses, the bitterness of his soul, because he's going to die, caused him to pray, caused him to ask the Lord. And so again, I'll, I'll say it, you know, the Lord wants to hear from us. And one of the ways in which he provokes us to talk to him is by bringing trials in our lives. And when we have the trials in our lives, the bitterness in our soul that's when we especially turn to God. And it was described here in verse 15. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and let me live. So it's the idea that the, it's the Lord who gives life, and it's the Lord who determines how long we live, and when we die, and how we die. So there's a bit of understanding of the sovereignty of God. And he, again, says, Oh, restore me to health and let me live. Again, he's gone to the right source. In verse 17, notice he says, Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Now, in poetry, if you will, he's saying, I was like this. I was bitter. I was in the pit, the miry pit. But you have brought me out of it. You have kept my soul from actually dying. And you have cast all my sins behind your back. Uh, as we think of that, this is a, a beautiful application of God's graciousness, God's forgiveness, God's love, and God's encouragement expressed in Hezekiah's deliverance from death. And by the way, we see a lot of those verses in the scripture, don't we? That uh, God will not remember your sins toward you anymore. And as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins. And here the expression, you've cast all my sins behind your back. 
And this is a good expression. I like this. Because when you have the expression, you don't remember my sins, we say, wait a second. I thought God was omniscient. He is. Does he forget anything? No. But what the phrase forget mean in that situation, what it means in that situation is he will never bring it up against you. As a believer who has trusted in Christ, Christ has received your condemnation. He will not bring up your sins against you. That's why when we go before the bema seat of Christ, it's not for sin. It would almost be like if you'd say, am I here because of my sin? And the Savior would say, what sin? I will not bring up your sin against you because I took the penalty for your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But here it's the idea of behind. He's not looking at it. He's not looking at it to bring it upon you and to bring you under its, uh, under its judgment. So a, a great expression here. And so here he's even talking about the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 18, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, you know how it is. We, we, we were making an argument and we're getting, we're, we're squeezing it and getting every drop of that out. Verse 18, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Now, I understand when we're talking about believers and we're going to heaven, we die and we go to heaven, we're going to be praising him. But this is spoken in poetry. This is spoken in general terms. And there is a sense in which dead men don't witness. Dead men don't praise the Lord anymore. Now, we could say, well, yeah, I read their biography of a missionary and, and it still lives on. Yeah, you're right. But um, it, it, for all intents and purposes, one who dies cannot witness to someone else about the Lord. In fact, that's the job of the pastor during the funeral because that person cannot speak for themselves, but you can, and you can say, they trusted Christ, they're in heaven, and if you don't know Christ, you need to come to Christ. So it's, a, it's an idea here where he is still making an argument Thank you. I need your restoration, Lord, because I want to praise you the rest of my life. And I can only praise you among men if you give me life and give me health. Verse 19. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. So there you have it. That's the completion of that argument is that, number one, I can praise you if I'm alive and I will praise you. And I will teach my sons about your faithfulness. And, and so that it really becomes a, a, a great prayer and it becomes a great event in the book of 2 Kings because we know indeed that God did heal him and give him another 15 years. Well, I wanted to cover that because Second Kings doesn't cover that. But now I want to move from, okay, after he was healed, after this hymn, this poetry, giving confidence and praise to God, we now are going to take a look at his wealth, Hezekiah's wealth. We know that when God delivered him from the Assyrians 
And when God delivered him from this fatal sickness, the Lord blessed him and he became wealthy. And we believe that he even enlarged the geography of Jerusalem. In fact, let me, uh, let me just show you that I have a, uh, I have a, um, yeah, I'll have it somewhere in here. It's at the end. Okay, this is Hezekiah's Jerusalem. And um, if, if you see the yellow there, if you see the yellow there, this phone needs to be off at the moment. It's people calling me, telling me they didn't appreciate that coyote illustration, I think. Okay, we see the city of David. That's the area that David had. It's in the yellow. It's in the bottom left. And then we see Solomon's expansion there in the blue. And so it made Jerusalem area bigger. When Hezekiah came, he expanded it even more because God blessed him and blessed him with wealth. And we see that he did certain things. And the red area for sure is his expansion. But we're not sure about the other part. But there's individuals who believe, yes, he even took the... Uh, geography even out that far of the pink. Well, would you turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles 32? Second Chronicles 32. And here we're only going to have a few verses, and it's going to talk about. Hezekiah's wealth and Hezekiah being blessed by the Lord. So we're going to see that. But for some reason, only 2 Chronicles captures it. So 2 Chronicles chapter 32, beginning in verse 27. <clears throat> it says, Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. Storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil. Pens for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flocks. He made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. Well, that's all that I really want to mention there, but his wealth is going to come into play in this next section. Also, I bring it up because Hezekiah is going to falter a little bit. We're going to see him falter in this next section. And there are those who say one of the reasons why he was faltering was because he was wealthy and proud. Now, if you look at the very end of verse 29, it says, For God had given him very great wealth. So maybe that's why the author is writing it. So the author is saying, Look, you should have realized it was God who was giving you the wealth. And then also, too, if you look at verse 27, it says, Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, and precious stones. So, you know, I could see both sides. 
on the one hand, I could see that the author put that in there. He made for himself. He was concerned about himself. He was self-centered. He could have done without the word made for himself. He could have just said, and he made treasuries. But I also see it that if he was the king and he was making it, he was making it for the kingdom, I would have no problem making it for himself. But nevertheless, people see these verses as a beginning of pride for him. Even though he had wealth, there was pride. Or because of the wealth, there was pride. And it's going to come into play with this next section, which is back in 2 Kings chapter 20. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12. Second Kings chapter 20, verse 12. And this section is just these two verses, 12 and 13. This is the king of Babylon visits Hezekiah, or actually the, the king of Babylon sent emissaries to visit Hezekiah. And notice what it says, verse 12. At that time... Baradak Baladin, a son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. All right, so perhaps the flags are going off already as we read verse 13, but let's go back to verse 12. Let's take a look at who was Baradak Baladin. Well, obviously, he first off was the king of Babylon at the time. He was the son of Baladin. If you'd go over to Isaiah 39, and you don't have to, uh, Isaiah 39, verse 1, Isaiah talks about this king too. Only Isaiah talks about his other name, and his other name is Merodach, all right, or Mardoch, or Marduk. Let me read it. At that time, Merodach, Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Almost the same thing, except for the change of the name. Well, when we see this name, we start to find out a little bit. What did, does Merodach mean? It means the son of Marduk. Marduk was a god, one of the gods of Babylon, the supreme Babylonian god. And so in that day, they were giving their names in reference to the gods that they worshipped. So we, we, we see uh, that they were pagans, worshipped many gods, and we see that even his name expressed that. He was the king of Babylon, and it talks about that he reigned twice, which can only happen if he was reigning and then for one reason or another, came off the throne and then went back on the throne. 
um, it was probably because one of the wars with Assyria. So if, you, if you're following this, Assyria right now is the great power. Babylon is not, but it's upcoming. And it's eventually going to take over. By the time that it comes back and takes Judah into captivity, it is greater than Assyria. And of course, the king at that time will be Nebuchadnezzar. All right, here we're going to put the hand in the glove. And it's at this time that Daniel is taken to Babylonia, becomes one of the officials, hears about the king's dreams, and is the interpreter and interprets these dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar is even in one of those dreams because at this point it's going to start with Nebuchadnezzar as the great sovereign king. And then it will go through the other nations through history. So I'm so glad we've studied uh, Daniel. And so we've seen all that. But this is what we have here. So at one point, as Babylon was struggling to become more powerful, Assyria somehow or other dethroned him. But then he came back. Now, uh, he is about to die in a few years from this episode, so we kind of can date when he went to see Hezekiah. And it says that he went or sent his emissaries because he heard that Hezekiah was sick. Now, whether he heard about the great miraculous healing or the great miraculous deliverance, we don't know for sure, but he heard that he was sick. Now, I imagine there was probably a little genuine concern for Hezekiah. So I'm not going to say this guy was completely scamming Hezekiah. However, if Babylon is needing help because they're not the number one nation, you go to a king who has a lot of wealth and a lot of army. And at this time, it's Hezekiah. So I believe, and many believe, that, that this king sent these emissaries to go into an alliance with Hezekiah. And that Hezekiah would go into an alliance with him. Now the problem is, is that Hezekiah, it's not his first rodeo. He already had gone through that when he was paying tribute to the Assyrians and going to be in alliance with them or submit to them. And he finally was rescued by Isaiah. And he said, no, I'm not going to submit to you. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Well, here's the same thing. And this country is coming. And what does he do? He shows them all his wealth, everything he has. There's nothing he has that he does not show them. Number one, it very well could be because He's thinking of joining them in an alliance. And he wants them to know you can be assured. If you come in alliance with me, you will be protected. Look at my wealth. Look at my armory. Look at all of this. Well, that's wrong from several, several angles. First of all, he's not supposed to be in an alliance. And second of all, if indeed Hezekiah can help at all, it's going to be because of the hand of the Lord. Isn't that what he just sang about in his hymn? Who rescued, God rescued him from his death? 
So it looks like he's faltering here, and I do believe that he is. So maybe, maybe Merodach, the king, is a little bit concerned, but probably the king is there to make an alliance. And Hezekiah showed all of his treasuries. And so when we ask the question why, as I've already answered them, it's, it's, it's because he wanted to show he was a worthy ally. But what I didn't tell you about was in 2 Chronicles, and you don't have to turn there because we've turned enough, 2 Chronicles 32, 31, 2 Chronicles gives us the reason why this is happening. God is testing Hezekiah. Well, what kind of a test is it going to be? Well, I think there's going to be a test of whether he's going to remain humble with all this wealth or show it off. Or it's going to be a test to see, all right, Hezekiah, are you going to trust in me or are you going to make an alliance with another country? It says, even in the manner of the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. So this was indeed a test, and I, I think it was either a test of Hezekiah's pride through the wealth, even though God was the one that gave it to him, or whether he was going to go into alliance. Now, let's, let's move to the next section, which is he's going to meet with Isaiah. So that was just a short little thing, and now Isaiah is back in the picture. This is in 2 Kings uh, chapter 20, and verses 14 through 19. It says, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And, and again, you get the idea when it comes to God and it comes to these prophets, they already know the answer. And even Jesus would ask questions to which he knew the answers. But number one, he wanted to hear them say it. And number two, I think in a unique way, when it's said and when it's recorded, we get to hear it and read it in our, in our Bibles. Verse 15, he said, that would be Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And he it almost appears as if there's no remorse. He doesn't get it yet. He's not getting it, but he's going to get it right now. Verses 16 and 17. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Oh. And you can't help but put this all together in that he should have never said anything to them 
about all of his wealth for one reason, because of, of, of pride, if that was the reason. But the other reason is, wouldn't he at least suspect that at some point Babylon, trying to become a power, powerful nation, will become a powerful nation, and they're going after gold and silver. And guess who has gold and silver? Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And that is exactly what happens. Because by the time in a hundred years, by the time Hezekiah is passed and Nebuchadnezzar is the king, they are the most powerful. And they are going after nation, after nation, after nation, and after Jerusalem. And it says it's all going to be carried away. Carried it all away. And we also went through the book of Jeremiah where we went through all of the last kings in Judah. And then we see that Babylon came in and took Judah into captivity. So it's, it's kind of a sad thing here toward the end of his life. And I don't know that we can say, well, it's because he did this that God said that's enough. We're going to put you in captivity. In fact, what's going to be said is Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, is going to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's the one that God's going to say, that's it. It's because of him and his sins I am sending the Babylonians to conquer you and take you into captivity. So I don't think it's this sin here, but what a sad scenario. Now, there is more that is going to be said here, and it's quite interesting. Look, if you would, then, at verse 18. So in this dialogue with Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecy, and Isaiah prophesied that they would be taken into Babylonian kingdom, uh, it says in verse 18, Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, the word sons is used usually. These are not Hezekiah's literal sons, because as, as we see here, Hezekiah, he reigned from 716 to 687. Well, Jerusalem will be destroyed and taken into captivity 586. So that's approximately 100 years. So they're not his literal sons, but it's his offspring. It's his heritage. And guess who one of those men will be? Daniel. So when the Babylonians come, they are going to take some of the young men, the young men who um, are intelligent, healthy, and they are going to take them over and then they are going to serve the king and become officials to the king. And of course, that brings us to the book of Daniel and, and Daniel, we, we see that happening. But there's also, we, we see uh, Nebuchadnezzar taking all the best people first, especially if he can use them. And the truth of the matter is he doesn't take everyone, almost everyone, but the ones that, that, that are either the old or 
they're, they're handicapped or whatever. He doesn't take them. He only takes the best. But nevertheless, um, they are still there in Jerusalem after the captivity. Now, that's the interesting part, he says, about the sons. And then there's another interesting phrase here. Here's Hezekiah's question. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, for he thought, Is it not so if there will be peace and truth in my days? He's asking Isaiah, is it going to be peaceful as long as I live these 15 years? And I've read some commentaries where they're saying, yeah, he's, he's kind of going downhill a little bit, very prideful, very self-centered, and it could be, but that may not be it at all. He may, he's the king, and he's the king for another 15 years, and he's concerned about his kingdom. And he's concerned about if he needs to do anything. And it could be with that kind of attitude that he asks this question. And the answer is, yes, there will be peace. You won't have to worry until 100 years. So there is peace. Well, it's at that point then we come to the last two verses in this chapter and about Hezekiah's life. So, again, we see the comparison between Kings and Chronicles, and it seems like when one book doesn't go into detail about one of the kings, the other book does. Those kings that are highlighted, not because they're necessarily good, maybe because they were necessarily evil. There's a lot written about them. But here we have Hezekiah, about whom a lot has been written. Not only in Kings, but in Chronicles, and not only in Chronicles, but also in Isaiah. And I, I think rightfully so. He still is a breath of fresh air, even though he vacillated a little bit. And let's be honest, probably all of us vacillate if if our vacillation is only vacillation and doesn't lead to taking wrong steps and making wrong decisions, good. But if that vacillation causes us to falter and we end up making wrong decisions and sinning, that's not good. And for the most part, he stayed faithful to the Lord all the days of his life. And now we're going to basically read the Acts of Hezekiah. It's just a common expression in the book of Kings. And it's going to highlight a few things. Verse 20. Now the rest of the Acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And I'll say it again, when it says, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? It's not referring to the biblical book of First or Second Chronicles. That expression is an expression of legal and historical documents in the kingdom, okay? In a particular kingdom, because it says the kings of Judah. And... You remember that in, in many cases, 
It didn't say anything about the, that king in Chronicles. So why would it say you can find out more about him in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? Well, because it's not the Bible that he's talking about. It's talking about these extra biblical references. And when the writer of Kings, be it Jeremiah, be it Ezra, or one of the other prophets, and Chronicles, probably Ezra. So when he wrote these things, he probably used some of these. And you say, well, they're not inspired. Why did he use some of those? No, they're not inspired. But what he was writing was inspired. And the Holy Spirit was uh, directing him what he should include and what he shouldn't. We see an example of that in the New Testament when Jude quotes the apocryphal book of Enoch. Now, we don't believe that the apocrypha is inspired. It's not on the same level as the inspired scriptures. Well, why in the world would Jude quote from it then? Well, he doesn't quote a lot from it, but he does quote a verse or two. And we would have to agree then those two verses are true. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was moved to include those. And it's, it's a very, very interesting piece of quotation there. We won't go into it tonight. Anyway, the point that is made here, though, is let's look at what Hezekiah is famous for. Now, we know he's famous for increasing the uh, geography of Jerusalem, but he is famous for the Pool of Siloam and the conduit that brought water underground, into the city, so that if they were ever attacked, they would have water, and that the enemy would not have the water to stay out there forever, because they had fresh water, they wouldn't have the water outside the wall, but Jerusalem had water inside the wall. And we'll just quickly go and look at Hezekiah's tunnel real quick. Um, again, if you go over to Israel, that, that's probably going to be on your agenda when we can ever visit Israel again. But that'll probably be on your agenda, this, this, uh, this incredible uh, uh, conduit, stone conduit that they dug out underground to get the water in. It's just incredible. So here, here would have been the... Uh, Jerusalem, and you see on the outside that I have it circled, that would be uh, the Gahan. That's the Gahan Spring, and it was outside. Well, when this happened, Hezekiah said, look, we got to get that in here and away from them and, and to us. And so this is roughly the map from what I can see from other maps. Uh, my GPS wouldn't work in there, Dave, as I was going through the tunnel, or else I would have it perfectly mapped. Uh, but um, you could see it goes from the outside of the Gihon Spring, inside underneath the wall. Some of that was already there, but then he continued it and brought it down to the Pool of Siloam. And these are very, very famous, and you go there, and you're going to get to walk through the tunnel. When you go to walk through the tunnel, it's going to tell you how deep it is that day. So, uh, like I shared before, it wasn't even a foot deep when I went through it, but it was up 
a couple feet when Dave went through it. And then I have a picture where it's up to the waist of someone. Uh, this is our group. This is the only picture I could, could get. Oh, oh, this one here. That was one of the fellows that was uh, with Gail Mullinex. Um, now, this is not our group, but this is to show you how deep that water can get. This is Hezekiah's tunnel, and would you look at it? I mean, it's incredible. And you can imagine the gallons and gallons and the volume of water that can come in through it and then coming into the pool. So they were collecting it. Uh, this is where it comes out, right by the Pool of Siloam. And this was the Pool of Siloam when I was there. And this is the Pool of Siloam now. They are doing uh, quite a bit of excavation there. And they are finding this area to be much wider than what we saw there. And, and you can see the steps. Why the steps? Well, if it was a, if it was a, a, a massive pool, you would have steps that people could uh, either be in the water on the steps or could go down into the water. So that's exciting uh, to see what they're doing over there. There's some excavation. Yeah, there's the houses that are above there, the modern houses. And you got to get over that when you're in Israel. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shock you at first, but then you start to have, uh, you know, uh, microscope vision. You're not looking at that. You're thinking of that because this actually happened there. All right, so there's the Pool of Siloam. All right. Anyway, this is what he's remembered for. And they, your tour guide will read this to you before you go through it. So uh, that's incredible. And then we have verse 21. It says, So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son became king in his place. So Hezekiah, when it says he slept with his fathers, there's always the question, well, does it also mean that he slept with the kings? Did they bury him with the kings? Some of the kings were so awful, they didn't bury him with the kings, but they buried him with their family. Well, Hezekiah obviously would have been buried with the kings. We'll pick it up next time we meet about Manasseh, and we'll see his life. But three quick applications. What we see here is, number one, give thanks for answered prayer. Number two, steer clear of the perils of pride. And number three, make the right decisions. First of all, give thanks for answered prayer. You know, we need to constantly do this. And I dare say every prayer is answered. But not every prayer is answered the way we exactly want it to be answered. But if we pray and it's not answered according to our petition, it is answered according to the will of God. So either way, we need to thank God for answered prayer. If he, like with Hezekiah, when he asked for health and God gave it to him, great. That was also the will of God. But suppose he wouldn't have. Then what would we say? Well, God would have carried out his sovereign will. So there's an attitude in Hezekiah in that hymn where he does trust in God, that he can answer prayer does answer prayer, will answer prayer, even if it's not what I wanted, but it's what he wanted because it's according to his sovereign will. You can always be thankful for that. And, and you know what? By and large, when I talk to believers here um, and, and we talk about those kinds of things, I hear people say that. I hear people say, well, 
you know, must not have been God's will. And that's, that is theologically correct. Some people will say, well, that's a sign of weakness on your part that you don't have a faith. No, it's a sign of being a, a student of the Bible that you know that God is sovereign and you can't name and claim anything from him. That's what that means. Secondly, steer clear of the perils of pride. So we saw that with, with Hezekiah, and maybe, maybe there's something to it with the wealth and the quote-unquote my house, my treasures, my days, maybe. Maybe it was there. But we also know from Second Chronicles 32.25, it says, But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. And it was at that time he became mortally ill. So there was pride involved somewhere in there. And the expositor's commentary says, Hezekiah escaped the lion, but succumbed to the serpent. He let the enemy know his secrets. Again, it was his pride. And it would become Jerusalem's downfall. One of the reasons why Babylon targeted Jerusalem was because Hezekiah had a lot. So Hezekiah's experience remains a stern warning to all the perils of pride. Everyone who is proud, Proverbs 16:5, proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. The Lord hates pride. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Why does he hate pride? Because that's not the message. The message isn't, hey, come see me. Hey, it's a night with me. It is about come hear the word of God. If you promote yourself, that's the wrong message and God will not approve of it. And then finally, the last application would be make the right decisions. Warren Wiersbe writes, his great victory over Assyria gave him false confidence as he entertained the Babylonians. He mortgaged his people's future by what he did and was thankful the defeat would not come in his own day. The way he writes that doesn't make it sound good. Your decisions today will affect others tomorrow. Make the right decisions. How apropos is that? Well, let's just close then in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for really all the detail, Lord. Uh, there's no generalities in the truth. There's no generalities in these real events that's recorded for us in Scripture. And there's no generalities in what we are to take home as an example of how we should live. Lord, Help us thank you for answered prayer. Lord, keep us clear from the perils of pride. And Father, give us your wisdom, biblical wisdom, to make the right decisions. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, any thoughts or comments?